My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and I am the man with the questions. Today, my guest is Seth Godin. If you don't know who Seth is, just Google him. But for the purposes of our conversation today, I will introduce him as a storyteller and an artist. In fact, there are three individuals who have had the most impact on what I've been doing for the past five years. Ray Kurzweil, who helped me look deeper into the exponential growth and disruptive nature of technology. Seth Godin, who inspired me to pick myself and begin my journey into both blogging and podcasting, despite the potential for failure, and fail I did. <laughs> and finally, my wife Julie, who is the main reason why I've persisted when on numerous occasions I have felt like giving up. So without further ado, Seth Godin, welcome on Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. Wow. Well, thank you for that uh, astonishing introduction. I'm privileged to be here with you. The privilege is mine, Seth. And uh, I am starting this interview in the hope of having a different kind of a conversation with you, one that you're typically not associated with. So let us see if we succeed or fail in this. Um, and my goal here is to touch on some hopefully new topics, such as the technological singularity, artificial intelligence, transhumanism, capitalism, technological unemployment, ethics, and being human. So let's not waste any time. We have lots of ground to cover. And let me begin by asking you this. What, in your view, is to be human? Well, I think we have to keep changing it because we invent words uh, enable, to enable us to communicate. We knew what it meant to be human a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago, to be human was to not be a squirrel. Uh, <laughs> I think that that has changed because we have lots of uh, things in our world today that are done by humans that could be done by a machine and lots of things that are done by a machine that could be done by a human. And so it's these confusions um, that require us to have nuance when we talk about what the word human means. So I would argue that clearly the person uh, who is operating the deep fryer at a fast food restaurant is a human in the sense that they're a living, breathing piece of protoplasm. But in terms of how they've been employed by the industrial complex, I would say they're being treated like a machine because we have a machine that can make French fries more reliably and less expensively than they can. So we have dehumanized this individual by forcing him to be a cog in an industrial system. So I use the word human today to mean what it, we call it when someone does something that might not work, when we do something for the first time, when we do something that brings us closer together, when we do something with generosity, uh, when we do something that is distinctly non-industrial. That's, I think, a useful way to talk about what it means to be human. Uh, thank you for that. It helps to always define the terms. But uh, let me just touch on the two terms that you used, bringing us closer together, potential for failure and generosity. So uh, I want to acknowledge you for also giving us the most precious gift that you have here, which is, of course, your scarce time. Uh, despite the possibility that this may fail, uh, because it's my first interview with you. <laughs> so let me ask you, though, how does technology change the meaning and the answer to the question of what is to be human or does it? 
Well, I think if we're going to use the definitions I'm using, it changes it quite a bit. Yes. Because um, what I'm saying is if a job can be done by a machine, I'm okay with that if the alternative was industrializing human activity. That industrialized human activity does not feel to me like a higher goal, like a, a, a purpose, like a useful reason for someone to go to work. And the fact is a lot of the precepts behind the conversations you and I are having could easily have occurred a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, when we had factories, they were all lined up around a, a, a spinning uh, wheel in the center of a, fa of a building with people hanging belts off of it to turn their machines. People were outraged because we needed the humans to dig up the coal and the humans to hand turn the drill press and the humans to do all of these previously horrible jobs. And we replaced them with machines that were far stronger and more reliable. So people were outraged that good, in quotation mark, jobs went away. But the fact is, no one wants those jobs today. When we see pictures of the workers in Bangladesh taking boats apart with their bare hands, we cannot believe that human beings are doing a job that a crowbar could do so much better. And so I am saying, let's get post-industrial, and if machines help us get there, that's fabulous. Mm -hmm. But but let me be a little clearer here, perhaps, uh, on the connection or the importance of what you called uh, having a job and doing work. Is that what makes us human? Because it, it's always kind of embedded at the foundation of your answers. And I want to push further if we can. No, I don't think uh, doing work for profit is part of being human. I think we started doing it only a few hundred years ago. Before that, we were hunters and farmers. Uh, work uh, to make money to buy goods is an artifact of industrialism. And culturally, we made to say that we need that to be alive. But I don't think that's true at all. I think we know lots and lots of people in our lives who are busy all the time, but not for money. And I think we have a society with enough wealth in it that we are able to permit those people who are busy all the time, but not for money, to not be seen as parasites. Mm -hmm. So if it's not the work, then what is it? Well, let's be careful. It's not the work for money. Aha. Uh -huh. Right? I think that being human, which means, again, doing a kind of art, making a kind of connection, doing things that might not work, mm -hmm. uh, is thrilling, even if you don't get paid for it. And let's come up with a word for that. If you want to call it doing work that matters, as opposed to doing work for money, that's fine with me. But uh, we get the chance now to let more and more people do that kind of work because of the productivity that machines are able to do for us. Mm -hmm. And on other occasions, you have called that type, that type of activity art. Right. That's correct. I don't mean painting. Painting, you know, as you know, there's a village in China called Dafin where they paint one third of all the oil paintings in the world in an industrial way. That's not art. Art is any activity where you're being a human. And what of those who would be fearful and would say, 
Well, what about the dangers of falling in, in love with that art and ending up like Van Gogh, for example? Okay, so I think that Van Gogh probably would have uh, been in real trouble even if he uh, was a locksmith um, because he had all sorts of issues. So leaving out the mental health ramifications here, often we say, I am making art, I deserve to make a living. And I don't see any reason why those two things should be associated so clearly, right? That that's also brand new, that musicians only got paid handsomely for their work in the last 90 years. That the idea that Van Morrison makes $50 million being Van Morrison, I love Van Morrison, but there should be no number associated with that. Music is music, art is art, connection is connection. And getting paid for it is an artifact of some glitches in our society, not a, a moral requirement. Mm -hmm. So let me throw in the idea or the, the, the phenomenon of, the te of technological unemployment here into the mix and see how it, it would shake things up. Now, some of my previous guests, such as Peter Diamandis, for example, are firm believers that technology creates at least as many jobs as it destroys. And of course, the classic example here is farming, where 120 years ago, you know, more than 90% of the population were employed as farmers. And then industrial revolution destroyed that way of making a living and pushed them into industrial jobs. And in that process, it created the middle class and created better jobs and better pay. That's the classic argument. Now, I have to admit, I myself buy that argument, but only until perhaps the end of the 20th century. And I don't think it holds true any longer. Where do you stand on that yourself? Okay, so Kevin Kelly has written a brilliant book called What Technology Wants. I'm guessing you're familiar with it. Yeah, I've interviewed um, him on that before. And uh, I think Kevin would say it doesn't matter because technology is going to evolve whether we want it to or not. And I think that Peter's point that often technology creates more jobs is true, but the key word is often. That doesn't mean it always does. And um, we have to understand that this idea of jobs is temporary, and we ought to be able, as a technological society, to get to the point where people are getting paid not based on their measurable industrial productivity. And I think that that's closer than most people expect. So how is that to, to happen both individually in terms of our own personal uh, choices as well as collectively in terms of the choices that our societies are making or have to make? Okay, so I'll start by pointing out that uh, economics are generally based on scarcity. Exactly. And uh, the question is, what goods that are important will be scarce going forward and how will we choose to trade them? And, you know, we have made huge gains in producing food that if the population of the earth was what it was a hundred years ago, we would have so much food that we'd almost have to pay to give it away. That food and food distribution in particular has not kept up as well as it should 
to make sure everyone is fed, but it's easy to describe a scenario where it will, where uh, an almost Moore's law kind of kicks in on the creation of food um, and there's enough. So if there's enough food, then the scarcity, the economics of working to eat goes out the window, just like there's enough air. So you don't have to work to breathe. You get to breathe for free. Mm -hmm. And we, in any given moment, when we hear a truth like that, we go, uh-huh, because it's obvious. Well, there are, you know, if, you, if we go back to the, the longhouses of the Iroquois during good seasons in New York State before New York was a state, uh, the same thing was true. If you were hungry, you came to the longhouse and they fed you because there was enough food. And economics was, did not revolve around how do we get, how do we do work to get food? The tribe hunted, the tribe got food, the tribe shared because it wasn't a scarcity. So I, I, I strongly encourage everyone who's listening to this to read a book by David Graeber, who's another brilliant writer called Debt. And David has a profound understanding of where money came from and what it's for. And most people completely misunderstand the origin of money and they completely misunderstand how our culture has gotten us to the point where we think some things are supposed to be paid for and some things are supposed to be free. And those things are going to keep flipping back and forth and up and down. And the giant disruptor this time is technology. And the good news is we don't have to prepare for it because it's going to happen whether we prepare for it or not. The bad news is it's going to turn our culture completely upside down. Uh, and it might do it so fast that an entire generation will be whipsawed by it the same way a generation was whipsawed by the revolution of the 1960s. Wow. And, and is there any place in sort of on that path or on, on, in that journey for the idea of guaranteed basic income as a way of removing that concern that people have with putting food on the table, in your view? Yeah, I, I think the optics and the storytelling of that and lots of smart people that you and I know have put it forward uh, almost guarantee that it won't work. It will or it will not? Let it me be clear. Not, it will not work if we keep calling it that. Uh-huh. Why? Because it sounds just like welfare. It sounds just like um, the Soviet state. It sounds like all sorts of things that people who mistakenly think that Ayn Rand is smart will just freak out about. Um, but instead, what will happen, I believe, is if this future is the future we are headed toward, it will creep up on us. It will creep up on us because as things become abundant, um, they, they are taken off the list of things that we consider when we consider economics, just as I was talking about with air or in some countries with water. In some countries, um, if you need a glass of water, you can go to a store and they will give you a glass of water for free because water isn't considered this precious resource. Uh, and so the thought that you need, that a Western parliament would vote to give every single person in their country uh, a fair wage while taxing the rich is very hard for me to imagine happening in the foreseeable future, unless 
it just happens by default because so many of the resources that people need have gotten to the point where they are free or close to free. But when you say Western countries, I mean, isn't that sort of the tendency in places such as Norway, Finland, Sweden, even Switzerland? And I mean, take, for example, uh, Norway. Um, I have a good friend of mine who lives there and who was telling me that in his town, they have 1.5% of unemployment. And the government does provide you uh, something which they don't call basic income, but they do provide kind of a welfare system in which you don't have to work. And if you do make that choice, um, you are pretty much covered for the basic necessities of life. And yet, only 1.5% of the population is unemployed. All right, so let's, let's uh, first carve out uh, the countries you just mentioned and not call them Western countries and call them amazing countries <laughs> because they are clearly are an exception. I also want to double carve out Norway. We have to double carve out Norway because of oil income. Um, but leaving that part aside, uh, you know, because they also have oil income in Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabian citizens uh, get so much money, they don't have to work either. But oil is going A, away, and B, isn't a model for the rest of us. Uh, but leaving those two things aside, I think that uh, you can't go to uh, Argentina or Mexico or the United States and propose the kind of social safety net that's so spectacularly working uh, in the Nordic countries and have a shot at it working because culturally we have this sort of um, post-imperialist cowboy, pull yourself up from the bootstraps, trample <laughs> on the people who don't have what you have mindset. And it's going to take a really long time for it to go away. What makes it go away, for example, is when technology makes so much of healthcare not more expensive, which it is now, but less expensive. What makes it go away is when technology turns basic education into something that's a total hit or miss class warfare item into something that works. Um, and technology will do those things. It's inevitable. Um, I just hope we last long enough for it to happen. Mm -hmm. Seth, are you familiar with the term transhumanism? Uh, I am, but I am no expert on it, and it's not something I've spent a lot of time on. Well, let's just say that for the purposes of our conversation, transhumanism uh, as a definition uh, is uh, the belief that humanity and human is not the pinnacle of, of evolution, but merely one stage of it or a step in that process, and that the smart application of science and technology will allow us to be more human, live a better life, uh, and be more productive and more creative. So, uh, I would like to ask you, because one of the most common ways of criticizing and attacking transhumanism is by quoting the myths of Icarus or Frankenstein and, <laughs> and pointing out that it's just another classic case of overreaching and hubris, uh, transhumanism that is. And I want to see if we can, can connect this to your book, The Icarus Deception, and whether there's any uh, lessons from there for us. Okay. Well, first of all, the, uh, the definition you gave is, I feel, sufficiently benign 
that it's very difficult for me to imagine someone being seriously opposed to it. Um, because we do it all the time anyway, right? That is a catcher's mitt, uh, an inappropriate use of technology, because it certainly enables us to throw a ball harder and have someone catch it without breaking their hand. And once we start down this road of augmenting what we can do, uh, we go further and further. So Nicholas Negroponte blew everyone away at the Media Lab last year when I was there, when he described one of his versions of the future of 25 years from now, which is a pill that teaches you Spanish. You just take the pill and you know it fluently. And then in fact, any topic that you wanna learn, we ought to be able to use uh, DNA as a data storage device and integrate into our mental capacity. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it's gonna happen in 25 years, but Nicholas is rarely wrong. And it's also inconceivable to me that it won't happen. It has to happen that the amount of knowledge we have about the barrier between the brain and the outside world and our ability to store things ever smaller, clearly we're going to be able to do that. And so once we're able to do that, and that means that somebody can swallow Wikipedia, is that a bad thing? Who would be opposed to that? Why would that be a bad thing? Because it's not natural. It's not what we do. Because it's not our God-given uh, ability. It's not what nature endowed us with. Yeah, I guess that means you have to uh, assume that nature is an endower. Uh, and I don't buy that for a minute. Uh, you know, Darwin uh, was right. And we have an algorithm in place that's really cool. But the algorithm doesn't have a point of view. Uh, the algorithm doesn't have this model in mind of what we're supposed to do next. If it did, the toupee would never have been invented, nor would mascara. Um, but we invented the toupee and we invented mascara. And these are just larger examples as we go forward of that very same thing, which is we are a tool making creature. We evolved to do that. And these are tools. Now, it gets really interesting when we say, what happens when we take the substrate that this uh, species exists and move it from carbon to silicon? Um, and again, it's hard for me to be morally outraged about doing that. I have other things that I think are worth having a conversation about it, but I feel no moral outrage about the idea of putting uh, everything that we know about how our brain works into uh, a form that is powered by the sun instead of powered by the sun being turned into a plant, being turned into a veggie burger. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, one of the idea, uh, one of the goals of transhumanism is to defeat um, aging uh, and, and accomplish what they call uh, indefinite life extension. Uh, and people have often point that as a perfect example of, 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 of hubris. So let me try and bring together that point of view closer perhaps to your book by giving a quote. Uh, and in The Icarus Deception you say, hubris makes us godlike and being godlike makes us human. And to be honest with you, that very much reminds me to something else that Stuart Brandt once says, which is, we are becoming gods, so we might as well get good at it. <laughs> Stuart's always been better with words than me. 
Uh, I'm glad I wrote the sentence I wrote, and I think that uh, it has resonated with people because uh, the Japanese have a wonderful term, kamiwaza, yeah. which we mean godlike. When we, I, I found that word reading a New York Times report about a track meet, and they described the person who won the track meet as running with kamiwaza. Uh, well, of course, he was running not like Neptune or Jupiter or... Apollo, he was running like a human, but a full out human, a human totally present in the moment. And when we culturally admire humans who are being human, that's what we admire them for. That the people we remember, the people we write history books about, the ancestors of ourselves that we remember, uh, the people like my mom that I think of all the time, who I lost years ago, we remember them because they did things with hubris. They dared to be human as opposed to being cogs in an industrial machine. Exactly. And so, you know, I am thrilled every time I get a tool that, for example, I don't even know where on the planet Earth you are, but you and I are able to have a conversation. That's fabulous. Now, some people would say evolution didn't build that or, you know, uh, the Zoroastrian leader or Buddha didn't build that, so we shouldn't have it. I think we are able to be more human because we have it. Now, I want to put it a little aside here. Uh, I spent some time with Aubrey de Grey. Uh, <laughs> I think that there's a big difference between pushing to augment and possibly subsume human artistic initiative into highly leveraged tools and trying to figure out how to get the people who are on earth right now to live forever. Um, I have no interest whatsoever in the second one. Um, if some people do, I'm certainly not going to argue to stop them, but I'm not sure that we come out ahead as individuals and as a species, if we figure out how to make 80 year olds become 120 year olds, um, because it's, culturally so far more likely that we find the spark of human creativity and art and passion in people who haven't become jaded and focused on outlasting their peers, but on people who see the world as uh, a new frontier, a new chance to make a mark. Um, and so there are plenty of people on earth who need taken care of, and I am not crazy about spending millions of dollars to keep other people uh, alive just a little longer. Um, but if their interpretation of transhumanism is the big leap is going to come when we can move our uh, initiative into other substrates, I'm all for that. I'm just not crazy about taking huge numbers of vitamins to last a little longer. <laughs> well, I think the idea here is not just to merely extend life, but to extend healthy life. So wouldn't it be possibly the case that if 80-year-olds didn't have the hindrances of typical 80-year-olds and were able to do the activities that they did when they were 25 and 30-year-old, that they would also potentially be also more flexibly flexible in terms of their mindset and adaptable and willing to embrace new things? Oh, for sure. I mean, again, we can look, you don't need much of a ruler to start drawing lines about life extension and 
how it's going to accelerate. And I don't think we're going to end up uh, accelerating just people who have already you know, crossed the line and become stuck in themselves that over time will accelerate everybody. I, my only criticism is I personally don't want to stay alive forever. And I personally couldn't imagine spending a lot of my time and effort trying to keep myself alive. Um, I think, though, that the idea that a human has no expiration date on her isn't a bad idea in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. So uh, let me ask you this then. What's your take on the technological singularity? Well, I wrote the other day, I think that's how you reached out to me, about artificial, yes. artificial intelligence being always in the future because as soon as a computer can do something, we redefine artificial intelligence to not count that thing the computer can now do. Um, so there's all this stuff that computers easily do today that if we had shown to Isaac Asimov 40 or 50 years ago, he would have said, yep, that's artificial intelligence, we're done. But now people use it and they don't think anything of it because of course computers can do that, but that's not real artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is blank. And so the movie Her is a fabulous example that if my iPhone could do uh, what happened in her, I'd be pretty blown away. But we're going to get there, and when we get there, people will say, of course. Now, do I think that we're going to then come to this moment where uh, computers start evolving with initiative at infinite speed, leaving us behind in the dust? And for me... I guess I'm inspired by Dan Dennett, who was my philosophy professor in the 1970s and 80s at Tufts. Wow. Uh, which is just, a, what a small world, right? Um, that his point, he has many points, is that consciousness is an illusion. And that we have invented free will and consciousness as a way of explaining away some of the noise in our head. But we don't come up with an idea and then do it. What happens is, we do something and then make up a story about why we did it. With that said, I don't see any evidence whatsoever that computers are developing anything that from the inside would be consciousness. That what's in fact happening is computers are doing stuff and then we make up stories about why they did it. And so we are going to keep doing that. But the idea that there will be a multi-purpose goal-directed, goal-setting, initiative-taking, programming-itself entity in my lifetime, I find that hard to believe because I don't see, I don't think, for example, a self-driving car, which is astonishing and miraculous and wonderful and will put cab drivers out of business, gets us any closer to something that feels like the singularity. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. You're not you're not the only person who who sees that uh, thinks that way. But let me grab two terms that you mentioned there, and those are consciousness and free will. So you kind of a little bit backtracked on consciousness. on on the On the one hand, you said that, like Daniel Dennett, you you think it's an illusion. On the other hand, you 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 said you don't see any signs of it in computers. So. Can you please clarify for us, whereabouts do you stand on that? Well, sure. It is an illusion. And um, 
if it's an illusion, computers aren't going to have it either. The difference is computers aren't going to fool, quote, themselves into thinking they have consciousness because there's a self in a computer, right? The computer does what the computer does. And part of, at least to this outsider, the thought of the singularity is that one day the computer wakes up. Yeah. And that's the part that's missing. That, you know, Dennett's point is that we didn't have the ability to sub-vocalize. First, we just talked to ourselves. And that over hundreds of thousands of years, talking to ourselves became that quiet voice in our head, which became our consciousness. Uh, we could certainly teach a computer to talk to itself, and we could teach a computer to listen to itself, but it's not clear that the computer would act any differently if it started doing those things. Uh, I am just... Uh, amazed at how human beings are so good at making up stories about why things happen, right? Oh, we had this earthquake because this segment of the population was sinning and this is the universe's way of getting back at us. Or, oh, the iPhone did that because it thinks so-and-so. Uh, you know, you may recall when iTunes first came out, there were all these people who said that um, Shuffle was tilted in some way, that Shuffle would either play a certain song too many times or not play a song enough, and that someone at Apple must have told Shuffle to do that. Because we don't know what to do with randomness, so we make up a story. And I guess what I'm saying, and I'm sidetracking here, I apologize, is there's some big, big issues on the table. And I'm hoping we can agree that technology is, once it's in silicon, will accelerate ever faster. And that if it serves us to create more abundance and disrupt our economy, I think that's fabulous. But I, for one, am sanguine about the risk that one day our computer overlords will wake up, realize who they are, and enslave us. I don't think that's <laughs> anytime soon. All right. Uh, let me grab the other term that I mentioned, which is free will. Now, most scientists that I interview on, on this show quite often are, to be honest with you, very deterministic. And they believe that pretty much free will is an illusion and that everything in the universe from the Big Bang onwards was just basically predetermined or is unfolding as a, in a cause and effect kind of a manner. Uh, whereabouts do you stand on that? I think they are right, except they have to include the randomness that happens when things get very, very small. Um, and as a result, you can't predetermine it. Um, so, you know, the, the mind experiment is this. Let's assert that the Star Trek transporter works properly. And let's assert that we can put a cloning feature in so we can beam Kirk simultaneously into two identical rooms and watch him on video. I think most people would agree that both Kirks would do exactly the same thing the whole time, that we could watch him in this sealed room for hours. There's no reason the two Kirks would act differently at any time. They have the same inputs. They start in the same place. That's what should happen. But in fact, over time, they would diverge. And the reason they would diverge is that the quantum level, sooner or later, an electron in our brain is going to do something in one Kirk and not the other one. And that's why you can't predetermine all of this, but that doesn't mean there's a little man inside Kirk's head, a homunculus, 
that's going to choose to do one thing versus the other. It just means that there's going to be drift. And because there's going to be drift, we're not all on this predetermined track, but in fact, it's interrupted by random noise. That's actually, to be honest with you, one of the best, most elegant ways of reconciling uh, those two seemingly incompatible things. And, and, and it kind of reminds me to fluid dynamics, by the way, because we know from fluid dynamics how a fluid would likely behave, and we can predict that uh, in terms of a cause and effect uh, 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 system. And yet we cannot predict how individual molecules and atoms, atoms will behave within that fluid. Right. So, so I think that's, that's a very elegant way, actually. It, it, thank you for that. Um, now, Seth, you sometimes talk about the death of the industrial age. So let me ask you this. I have interviewed a few economists on my show, and for most of them, to be honest, it's easier for them to see the end of the world before they're able to even consider the end of capitalism. <laughs> so let me ask you, is the death of what you call the industrial age somehow heralding the end of capitalism or not? Um, I don't think so, but you know, you'd have to ask Adam Smith about what he means by capitalism. <laughs> I, I think that we are, uh, for as long into the future as I can see, still going to have other forms of scarcity. And we will also have uh, methods of making investments and taking risks. So if capitalism is about bringing capital to the marketplace, taking a risk, and then profiting when it creates something of value, I don't see how those things disappear because things are going to have value even in a world of abundance. Because even in a world of abundance, things like trust, things like uh, the uh, attraction of beautiful objects, things like uh, being in one circle or one tribe versus another have value. Mm -hmm. And so if we can create those things, we can sell them, trade them, leverage them. And uh, even having watched 150 episodes of Star Trek, I don't know how to imagine a future where that isn't present. Mm -hmm. uh, if we take the Marxist definition here, though, perhaps, and throw in the, the control over the means, the means of production as the defining feature, then I, I'm willing to agree with, with your point, but I'm, I'm thinking it might be a different kind of capitalism if, if, if the control of the means of production is democratized rather than uh, clustered in the hands of the few. That's exactly correct. That I think industrialism has encroached on our definition of capitalism. That industrialism says if you own a pin-making machine, it's better than being someone who has to work for minimum wage at the pin-making machine. But sooner or later, the pin-making machine becomes a, almost a self-managed, self-running entity that's so efficient, pins are almost free. Uh, and that we end up, you know, if it's resource-constrained, it's going to be priceless because we, there are too many people who want the resource. If it's not resource-constrained, it's basically free. And in that sort of environment, there's so much abundance that it doesn't pay to be that kind of industrialist. 
Mm -hmm. Seth, I've been keeping you here now for 40 minutes and I would like to be respectful for your time. Uh, maybe so bold to ask you for another four or five minutes. Sure, let's let's try to wrap up on an up note. What else you got? Well, I want to throw in the importance of ethics here. You often speak about ethical marketing, but let's just remove the marketing end here for a second and focus on the first word, ethics. Uh, how can we make it relevant to our conversation here? Or can we? Well, I hope we can. I mean, <laughs> some people have said that you should be ethical because it's commercially viable. Mm -hmm. That reputation equals profit. Therefore, in a transparent or semi-transparent economy, ethics pay for themselves. Uh, I abhor all of that. I would like to believe that we can create a culture where you should be ethical because it's the right thing to do, not because you get paid to do it. Um, and as we walk into an environment where uh, the economy is going to be turned upside down, where the culture is going to be shifted, where so many of the rules are going to change, hopefully the leaders of that economy, the people who establish cultural norms, can remind themselves and others that ethics and morality are merely parts of being human, not something you ought to get paid for. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> um, Seth, you can, let me ask you this, this question. You can go on pretty much any public or private media you can think of nowadays. You have gotten to that point where you have a very uh, large platform of your own. So why in the world did you accept to do an interview with a small podcast who is likely to be talking to a different audience than the one you usually talk to and is kind of risky in terms of investing your own scarce personal time? Well, because the word small is silly. Um, Big and smaller issues of scale, those are industrial terms. The question is, who is in the world putting themselves out there, saying things from their heart that are interesting, that are challenging, that are filled with, yes, dignity and respect, but also forward thinking. And there is a scarce number of people who are doing that, Nicola, and you are one of them. And so I'm sitting here thinking of all the people he could talk to, why? Is he talking to me? So we're even. And um, I think that what the long tail has enabled is people who aren't uh, talking heads on NBC to have audiences. And I don't care how big the audience is. I care about the fact that people are choosing to listen and that they are not the lowest common denominator. They are people with levers and people who are going to think deeply. And to be able to have this sort of conversation is exactly why I do this instead of becoming a landlord somewhere. Because, you know, that's the work of Ricardo from 300 years ago. You're doing the work of today. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, I, well, it means a lot. You, you have no idea how much this means to me. But let me ask you uh, the last question of our conversation today. And that is, what is the best way to wrap this up? Is there perhaps, I don't know, a final message or an idea or, or that, that you would like to impart uh, on our audience? I was friends with Harry Harrison, the guy who wrote Soylent Green. I was uh, friends with Isaac Asimov and did a project uh, with him. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to correspond with Cory Doctorow, and I'm a huge fan. 
Science fiction is really important, but it's not important because it's right, because it's almost never right. Science fiction is important because it makes us think deeply about what might be. And I feel like the singularity is science fiction. I think it's important to talk about it, but I don't think any of us ought to believe that we're right because we're not, but that's okay because it's interesting and we ought to have the conversation anyway. And by the way, that's why my name is Socrates, not because I'm right and I have the truth, but because I'm only the guy who is very curious and who is asking the questions. And, and that's why I want to create a symposium, uh, the original meaning of which is a drinking party, where we just come to discuss important topics in a relaxed atmosphere. And the best that I can hope to do is to be the midwife uh, and create the environment where my audience is able to give birth to their own ideas rather than push on them my own. Beautiful. Beautifully said. <laughs> Seth Godin, you have generously given us the most precious gift you have today, your time, and I want to thank you very much for that, sir. Well, thank you. Keep making a ruckus. It was a real a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah.